Well, we are in the book of Luke, but by way of introduction, let's look back at that passage I read earlier in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. I'm often asked the question, where do I, where do I think the evangelical church is going to go next in, in our culture? You know, we've seen uh, many, many decades ago sort of a, a dead orthodoxy or a lifeless orthodoxy going on in the church, and that then, of course, uh, spawned uh, uh, an experiential sort of approach. And, and many people didn't care really about doctrine. They just cared about, cared about how they felt about things. And, and that gave birth, really, to the last four decades of pragmatism. Basically, we said, look, nobody's coming to church. Let's do whatever it takes to get them in here. And so we dumbed everything down. We dumbed down the gospel. We dumbed down ministry philosophy. We didn't say what needed to be said. We stopped preaching the truth. And that, of course, has led to uh, a church that is filled up with some believers and uh, some who are starving, who are real sheep. But it's also filled the church up with people who don't know the gospel and who believe they do. People who um, have a weak or a false faith because the gospel there is a weak or a false gospel. And eventually that can only lead to places. And it always has in the history of the church. Whenever you have a weak gospel or a false gospel that is preached, you end up with people who, who have a weak faith or a false faith, and eventually they get frustrated with both of those, and it can only lead two places. On the one hand, people get frustrated and they become agnostic. They, they get frustrated that religion didn't work for them, that these so-called beliefs didn't do anything for them, didn't go anywhere, and so they turn to mystic, mysticism and subjectivism. Uh, whatever that might mean and whatever expression it might take. Then the other thing you see is ritualism, liturgical ritualism. In other words, we want to go do things to salve our guilty conscience. The faith we profess in the false gospel or weak gospel we've been listening to does not do anything for our life. And so we're still guilty. We feel guilty. We sense it. The heaviness is there. There's no power in our life over sin and the the lack of forgiveness from our notion of God or the God we conceive of is frustrating and debilitating. And so people turn to find ways to salve their conscience. And so ritualism and turning to uh, social gospel practices in society, you already see that today. You see a, a track that's heading off into agnosticism and mysticism, people leaving uh, the evangelical church and people leaving uh, what evangelicalism has been in terms of professing the gospel, and they're just running from it. They don't want anything to do with it. And then you have that other track that's going the other way, where you have an entire group of young people now who, who have really run headlong into the social gospel issues, and they're trying to salve their conscience in works-based kinds of things, and so they can be satisfied with those things. And Paul, when he was talking about his own conversion, draws a very, very sharp and clear line. And you remember what he said about putting confidence in the flesh. True Christians, Philippians 3.3, 3, do not put confidence in the flesh. And if there was a person on the face of the earth that, that maybe from a human standpoint had that right, or could have said, look what I've done, look who I am. If there was someone on the earth that could go before God and say, well... I mean, evaluate this. He lists what was in his prophet column. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was of Israel. 
He was under the law, circumcised. He is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He knew the law as a big time Pharisee. He practiced it to the letter. And when he was turned loose on the church, he was passionate about dragging Christians from their homes, putting them in prison, and then standing by as they were killed. In fact, he was so obedient to the law that everyone else would have bet their life on Paul, at least having earned salvation through his own righteousness. That's how meticulous he was. And that's why in verse 7 he says, Whatever was gained to me, I count it as nothing. It's junk. I trashed it. Means nothing. Meant nothing. Doesn't matter how many years I did it. Doesn't matter how many times I studied. Doesn't matter how many times I satisfied myself. How many times I went before God in self-satisfaction. Believing that He affirmed me for who I was. All of it. Doesn't matter where I went. Who I influenced. The people that I thought I could influence as a righteous rabbi. And the people that were influenced by my apparent righteousness. All of it. Junk. Garbage trash. When we come to this next little narrative in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, Jesus is being confronted by a little uh, group of men and they are charging Jesus and his disciples with unrighteousness. They're charging them with unrighteousness. And Jesus is going to make the same point. That it is perilous, eternally perilous, to try to mix a little bit of Jesus with the old framework of the law of God. It is perilous to imagine that you are righteous enough, but it's perilous equally to imagine you could dabble in a little bit of Jesus and still bring some of you. The two cannot mix They are diametrically opposed. One pointed to the other. One was fulfilled by the other. They are not coexisting in a track. You don't get to have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of your own sense of your own righteousness and your own good works to offer. And there were some who believed you could when Jesus came on the scene. When he came on the scene, they thought, oh, well, this is interesting. We don't necessarily like what he's saying. And we certainly don't follow everything he's doing But we are, after all, the most righteous system. We are the religious system. And the Pharisees saw themselves as the elite of the system. And so Jesus, we certainly want to consider what he's saying. We might dabble a little bit in his messages and sit around while he's teaching. But, man, if we see the slightest deviation from our track, we're going to take issue with that. And Jesus will make the point to them that not only are you on the wrong track, but you cannot imagine that you're going to dabble in a little bit of me and a little bit of the old framework. It's not going to work. And so in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, follow along as I read. So they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he'll both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wishes for new, for he says, ah, the old is good enough. Now stop right there. Let's just look at this. Uh, in two little sections. The first section is the charge itself, the accusation itself. Jesus' disciples are charged with unrighteousness, and you see that in verse 33. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. Or, as it's in Matthew and Mark, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why do John's disciples, Mark says, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So fasting is the issue. The twice a week ritual, as it had become, of fasting. Now it's interesting that in Matthew and Mark's account, he says that John's disciples came and and sort of came with the Pharisees or on behalf of the Pharisees. Luke omits that and just says that there were some people talking with him about this issue. So no doubt this is a little group of onlookers that has become kind of a hybrid. You have some Pharisees, and these are the, these are the uh, strict sect, hardline Pharisees. And, uh, and with them are some of John's disciples to create sort of a hybrid of externalism and asceticism. You know, the Pharisees were all about the externals. By the time you get to Luke 19, the Pharisee's standing there with the publican and he's saying, Oh, I fast twice a week and I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like this poor sot over here, this publican. And in his self-righteousness, he's, he's extolling his ritual of fasting twice a week. So clearly you had in this group uh, some Pharisees who, who uh, took the issue of fasting and made it a matter of externalism, which then made them appear righteous. And we'll look a little more at that in a moment. But you also had some disciples of John. This is odd. John's disciples. I mean, come on. He, he said, go follow Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And many did. Many of John's disciples went and followed Jesus as John the Baptist said he must decrease and Christ must increase. But you also had an asceticism in some of the disciples of John. Why? Well, John the Baptist himself was kind of a highly regulated life. You remember? He ate uh, wild He ate locusts and wild honey, and he wore camel hair, and he lived out in the wilderness. And until his public ministry, that's where he stayed. He was away from civilization. The guy was flat out bizarre, strange, set aside by God to be so. So when he had some disciples following him, they just kind of followed a bit of his lifestyle. They, they liked to follow his lifestyle because some of them, trend, you know, they sort of migrated and gravitated toward the, the ascetic lifestyle. You know, the hard sacrificing of your life, the eating of only this and the hard dietary things and living ruggedly out in the wilderness. Why? It made them feel better about their spirituality. Even some of John's disciples got caught up in it. And here they are foolishly aligning themselves with the Pharisees. And you remember, by now, Jesus has already done a bunch of miracles. 
He's already spoken truth. He's already, he's already laid the issue of He is the Lord of all knowledge on the line. He's already laid down the issue of He is all authority. He has the right to judge every soul. He's already showed Himself as the authority over disease and over sickness and over demons. And He did a bunch of miracles prior to this, for almost 18 months, down in the Judean area. So the Pharisees are on to him. They don't like him. They're starting to get very, very intense. And by the time you get to Luke 6, verse 11, they're already filled with rage and discussing together what they might do to Jesus. They want to discredit him. They want to deny his power. They're looking to defy his authority. And they'd like to declare a death sentence formally on him. And they are charging him with unrighteousness when they come to him. Now, fasting is, a, is not a hard thing to understand. There was only one Old Testament mandate to fast, and it was on the Day of Atonement. You can read about it sometime in Leviticus 16, 23 and following. Basically, it's not, the word fast is not translated there from the Hebrew, but it is the process whereby the people of God were called to humble themselves by getting rid of the comforts of life for a time period, before, during, and after the Day of Atonement. And on that specific day, they were not to participate in celebrations and and, and anything that would bring joy to their day. They were to be sober-minded, and that included a mandated time away from what you would normally take in for nutrition, sustenance, and your daily food. No celebratory feasts at that particular time or that part of the the holiday, particularly that specific day. They were about to deal with their sin and they weren't to have the comforts of life. That's it. Just one mandated fast. Now, they clearly had times in Israel's history when they did fast in order to bring themselves low. They got the message. So they stretched it beyond the Day of Atonement at times. And when Israel was in sin, the leaders of Israel would say, we have to go before God and pray. And so if we're going to pray, we need to do without food and without comfort and without sustenance. Why? Because we want to be brought low and humble ourselves before God. And when you're taking in comfort while you're praying for a heavy burden, it's problematic. It gets problematic. So there's no mandated fast in Israel other than the Day of Atonement, although they did practice it from time to time. In fact, when they were disobedient, sometimes the prophets said, you should do this. They didn't mandate it, but they said, man, whatever it takes to bring yourself low before God, do it. Fasting was part of what it meant to humble Yourself in the presence of God. It was a way of bringing yourself low. It it intensified your concern for what really mattered. That was the point of it. Spiritual burdens. When you had a spiritual burden, you you did away with the things that were the, the more mundane, routine trivialities of life. They may be important, but not nearly as important as spiritual burdens. And so you left out the comforts of food. You set aside the physical sustenance that that would be your normal daily focus, so that you could focus completely on the burdens outside of your own personal needs. And so it was wonderful because while not mandated, it did elevate and heighten your spiritual dependence. People do the same thing today. 
Though it's not mandated in the New Testament, it isn't harmful if you do it for the right reasons. If you say, you know what, there are prayer needs in our life, there are burdens in our life, there are there are serious matters of a spiritual nature and the distractions of the comforts of life are uninteresting to me right now and I don't want them in my life. I've seen people treat this a hundred different ways. I mean, people will just want so desperately to tell people they're fasting. You know, I don't want to say anything, but I've been fasting the last few days. You know, That's how they do it. Just kind of sneak it in there. Why? Because it's so hard for the human heart to do something to humble ourselves without using it as a means of looking righteous in the eyes of others. It's just where the human heart goes. It wasn't even mandated beyond one day in Israel. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they're already doing it twice a week to look spiritual. To look spiritual. God didn't like that. Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 10. You can study it on your own sometime, but the prophet just castigates Israel and said, that's not the kind of fast I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a fast where you say, oh, I'm doing without food, but over here you're, you're taking money from people. Oh, I'm doing without food, but over here you're immoral and dishonest and unjust. I'm looking for the kind of fast that actually humbles your heart. Where you don't get puffed up in pride and you tell no one about what you're doing. To humble yourself before the Lord. Turn to Matthew chapter 6 for a moment. Familiar passage. You know we have to turn here because Jesus describes exactly this group of people who will eventually accuse him in Luke 5. Matthew 6, verse 1 Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Verse 16, and whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. That's what they would do. They'd walk around and try to look you know, like they're not happy. They would even put white material on their face to look ashen and gaunt and starving. Why? To be noticed by men when they're fasting. And so they neglect their appearance. No personal grooming during that time. Oh, I'm going to look spiritual. I'm going to really put on the, the facial expression and the weak-looking body and the terrible clothes so I look impoverished and uninterested. Always about the externals. And so when they come to Jesus, just going back to Luke's Gospel, when they come to Jesus in Luke 5, they have already said to him when he was having the party with Levi, you remember? Levi gets saved. Jesus reaches out to this guy whom, who never expected Jesus would reach out to him because he was of the underbelly of society and, and his, his friends were all the criminal element, prostitutes and, and other tax gatherers. He was a cheat at the port. He was greedy. He loved money and he loved the immoral lifestyle and he was a traitor on his Jewish people. Jesus walks right up to him and says, follow me. He never expected that. Because the religious people of his own nation never came by and said anything to him. In fact, they wouldn't dare. Why? Because they'd be unclean. 
their personal spiritual cleanliness and holiness would get tainted by being around someone like Matthew. Jesus walks right up to him and says, follow me. Matthew follows him. He comes to Christ and he throws a party and invites his criminal friends. And it was sometime right after this party that this occurs, this group. And so they're saying originally at the party, why do you, why do you eat with sinners and tax gatherers? That's going to make you unclean. Here they're saying, why do your disciples not follow the fasts? But right now they're celebrating. Why are they celebrating when we're doing a fast? They must be unrighteous. That's his point. That's the point of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples being unrighteous by violating the most basic act of humility before God in the semi-weekly fast? If you're so righteous, then why do your disciples celebrate when they should be bringing themselves low? That's the charge. Well, now that you know the group that's come and now that you know the charge, what Jesus says to them just unfolds so simply here. It is so marvelous. And he, he answers them from three angles. He answers their accusation from three angles. And in his overall answer, he is charging them with unbelief. He is charging them with trying to mix personal human righteousness while dabbling a little bit in Jesus. He's trying to say to, the, to Jesus' disciples, I know you're dabbling with Jesus a little bit, but you've got to keep these rules. And Jesus is about to say, that is a sign of unbelief. And so he answers them from three angles. Number one, he says that your accusation is a sign of your spiritual blindness. Your accusation is spiritual blindness. Secondly, your accusation is an abuse of the Old Testament's purpose. It's a sign of your spiritual blindness because you're missing the most important thing and you're abusing the purpose of the Old Testament. And third, you're rejecting God's saving power so that you can exalt yourself. Your accusation is a rejection of God's saving power because you believe in your own. Now let's just walk through it very, very simply. Notice what Jesus says. This first angle he answers from, they've accused him of unrighteousness and his disciples, and he says, there is spiritual blindness in your accusation. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Now, he brings up a, a wedding analogy here, and then he's going to give three parables to sort of answer the rest of this. But the wedding analogy here is very, very simple. Jesus is telling them, look, the bridegroom is among your people. He's among his people. And when the bridegroom is there, it's just like a normal wedding. You had a bridegroom, and the bridegroom himself had an attendant party. This wedding attendant party to the bridegroom helped him prepare. You know how they helped him prepare? They brought gifts and food. They, they were, their job was to give him the greatest, most heightened experience of joy. That was their job. To talk to him about what's coming. To mention his bride. To talk about the excitement of married life. To sit around him and talk about how thrilling it is, this gift of a wife and marriage. To bring gifts and food. And they were just to relax and fellowship and feast. And Jesus says, how ridiculous would it be for the bridegroom to be among his attendants and for his attendants to say, now look, buddy, we're starting our, our, our semi-weekly fast. 
You've got to get on a course of fasting here. All this food, all this feasting. No, I'm sorry. That is ridiculous. And so the first thing that Jesus is going to say to them is, your accusation is a sign that you are missing the presence of the bridegroom. It is not a time for fasting. This is a time for joy. This is not a time for humbling. The bridegroom's here. The attendants are not trying to humble him. The attendants are trying to increase his joy. The attendants get it. The Greek syntax here is very strong. When Jesus says you can't get them to get on a course of fasting, can you? It's basically saying you most certainly will not be able to do it. You go to a wedding, you most certainly will not be able to do it. Just like you coming here are not going to be able to get my disciples to take their eyes off me because I am the bridegroom and they're my attendants. They are here to increase my joy and I'm here to let them celebrate. This is not a time for fasting. You're missing it. You're trying to ask the disciples to mix me the bridegroom, and the celebration of joy that I have arrived with the old rituals. They don't mix. They don't go together. You can't dabble in Jesus and still hang on to the old garments. He's going to make that point very fiercely in the parables here in a moment. Can't do it. Jesus used this analogy to point to the fact that His disciples are not fasting. They're celebrating Because he's in the midst of his people. They're not about to set aside him and go back to the old structure, the old framework. You want to constrain them, put them in the old framework? That's not going to work. The time for serious reflection would come. In fact, Jesus mentions it, and this is wonderful that he does. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You want to know when my disciples are going to stop this celebration? When I am cut off. When I am ripped from their arms, when I am ripped from their midst, arrested and taken away to be crucified. Now, the reason we know this is most likely, in the context, a reference to his death before his resurrection, the time on that weekend when they will be sobered, humbled, and crushed, and fearful. They're not going to be bothered with food from Friday on when that happens. The reason we, that I believe that's the emphasis here is because in John 16, Jesus says essentially the same thing to them. Hey, I'm with you a little while, then I'm going to go away, and when I come back, your joy is going to return, and no one's ever going, to, ever going to take it away from you. In fact, they were bothered by that. You remember in John 16? They said, you're going away? What, what do you mean you're going away? You're, you're everything to us. And he says, I, I am leaving for a little while, and then... Then I'm going to come back. And when I come back, no one, John 16 says, is going to take your joy away from you. How do we know that's resurrection joy? Because then he says, you're you're not going to ask me for anything at that point. I'm going to go back to the Father. And you're going to enter into the Lord's presence automatically, free access to the Father. And you ask him anything. He loves you. You're his child. You can talk directly to him. You can take your cares to him and he'll answer them. He tells the disciples that. I'm going to be taken away for a little while. And when I come back, you're going to see me and your joy is going to return. and It's going to be made full and no one's ever going to take it from you. And the reason is because you now have an intimate relationship with God the Father. You can ask him anything. He'll give it to you. No more trying to crank up some way to make it, make yourself acceptable to him. You're in me. You're fully acceptable. You have 100% access. 
Man, that is such a thrilling reality because I wake up every day and I know because of Christ I can go right into the presence of the Father intimately. And He wants me to be there, talks through His Spirit, by His Word, to His people. He gives us what we ought to know. And then He builds conviction into our heart. And I take my prayers to Him and He says, I'm listening to them, I answer them. The Spirit of God is translating them so that they're pure and right and good and not limited by my own fleshliness and humanness. Romans 8. Jesus says, well, my disciples have that right now. (laughs) I'm with them. You're not going to get them to go on some fast. You're not going to get them to go back to some old structure. The time for serious reflection will come. And from Friday of His crucifixion till I'm resurrected and I see them again, they're going to fast. They're not going to be bothered with food. That's true. It'll be a spontaneous fast in concern for me. It won't be some ritual to look righteous. The second perspective he gives here. Not only have the Pharisees missed the arrival of the bridegroom, blind to the Savior's presence, but they've also abused the purpose of the Old Testament. They are abusing the purpose of the Old Testament. Notice verse 36. And he was also telling them a parable. Here it is. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he tears both, he both tears the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Well, that's an easy parable to understand with a main point. You can't take the old structures and expect that it's going to handle the new. The new is brand new and if you sewed it into an old hole of the old garment and then you washed it, the new shrinks, pulls away from the old and both are ruined. You can't do that. When Christ comes, when the new covenant is here, it's, it's got to be His garment. The old gets discarded. You Pharisees are doing your fasting because you think that disciples of Jesus can dabble in a little bit of His presence while still holding on to the old structure. Nope, it's too dynamic. We used to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Christ is the temple and all of His people are temples of the Holy Spirit. How dynamic is that? We don't go run into one location in Jerusalem and worship there. We're all the temple of the Holy Spirit in this room who love Christ. That's way too dynamic for the old structure. The sacrifice of Christ is finished. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us. The resurrection power of Christ lives inside the believer. We're not waiting for it anymore. Furthermore, the law to a Jew, there were concepts in it that pointed to things. They pointed to Christ and their need for Christ. Galatians 3 says that very thing. The the law was a tutor to lead you to Christ. How so? Well, in the Old Testament, if you obeyed the law and you were a Jew, if you were a Pharisee, you, you, you saw concepts in the law of God regarding sin. You saw your need over and over again through the sacrifices that there is coming one who is going to be the permanent sacrifice and you longed for it. You saw the concept of sin being passed to the scapegoat and sin being put upon the sacrifice in the imagery of the priest passing the sins of the people to the animal, a substitutionary sacrifice. But it never actually did take away sins because you still were under the strain and judgment of the law. So what did all that do? It's supposed to point to Christ, point to an ultimate sacrifice, point to a Savior who would stop all this stuff, all this guilt, all this harsh reality of the law. 
The concept of sacrifice, the concept of sin, the concept of God's holiness, the concept of your need. All of that was embedded in the Old Testament law. And here you had Pharisees. Jesus is right there. He's going to be the ultimate sacrifice. He is on His way to the cross. He is their Savior. And they're saying, no, your disciples need to come back into the old system. Jesus is saying, man, that's going to ruin both. Because they're not compatible. One is the fulfillment of the other. One is the arrival of what the other pointed to. You're missing my presence and you're abusing the purpose of the Old Testament. The purpose of the Old Testament isn't to make you look righteous or feel righteous or even on your own be righteous. The purpose of the Old Testament is to show you you're not righteous. That's the problem. In Romans 10 and 11, that's exactly what Paul says of Israel. Why did the Gentile nations gain salvation? And the Jews get cut off? Why? Why did they have a temporary hardening while the Gentiles were being saved and included in the people of God? Because the Gentiles came to it by faith, which is the way Abraham came. But the Jews thought that they could get there by climbing their way to acceptability through the Old Testament law. That's exactly what these yokels are doing right here. Your disciples should be fasting. Fine, you want to spend time with Jesus, but this isn't the time. You've got to be doing a course of fasting right now. And Jesus says, really? Are you kidding me? You've got old garments with holes in them. You're trying to put Jesus, a new patch, on that old garment. That isn't going to be compatible. Or to use his other parable, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. It's obvious. You don't take fresh ingredients to ferment that beverage for everyone to be able to have. You don't take it and put it in an old wineskin because as the fermentation happens, the gases expand and the thing breaks. You lose all the product and you lose the thing that you could hold it in. It's very clear, verse 38, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What does Jesus mean? When the new covenant is here, when I'm here, the old structures have served their purpose. They've served their purpose. In Galatians 3, that's exactly what Paul would say. In Galatians 3, he tells the Galatian churches, you start in faith and then you're going to go back to the old rituals? How silly is that? The two aren't compatible. One is intended to lead you to the Savior. It's it's intended to make you dissatisfied. You can't be justified or acceptable by your own righteousness. So I want you to be dissatisfied, and here you are thinking you can go back to it. Oh, I love Jesus, but surely He accepts some of my sense of myself. Or maybe you have family members you love and... They've never come to Christ and you just keep saying to yourself over and over again, you know, but God surely will accept them. I mean, they were nice people. My grandma prayed all her life. What? Surely God cannot reject her. Yeah, but she she rejected Christ. Who was she praying to? That's what we do. We justify and rationalize the mixing of a little bit of Jesus and then dabbling in human works. And Paul said, you cannot do that. It can't be done. They're not compatible. Then why the law? Why did 
Did salvation come to Abraham by faith and then 400 plus years later, the law is added? Paul says in Galatians, it was added in order to let you know the depth of your transgression. It was to lead you to Christ. The scripture shut up everyone under sin so that you'd know and be frustrated. Isn't that true? It doesn't really matter whether you come from an irreligious background or religious background. Nothing you ever do can get rid of that sense of guilt and the mess that we make of our lives. Nothing. Only Christ. And then you walk into a church and you listen to a sermon or you go to a Bible study and you think you can dabble in a little bit of Jesus while you still bring all that baggage. You can't do that. There can be nothing in your prophet column. It has to be trashed. And here you had men who knew the Old Testament and they missed. They abused its purpose. There's no way you can fit the New Covenant into the structure of the Old. The New Covenant is too dynamic. It's the Spirit of God inside believers. It's just too free, too dynamic. There's no guilt or condemnation from not obeying the law. I'm still a sinner, yet I am perfectly justified in God's sight. How in the world are you going to contain that? By some fasting ritual or any other ritual. Silly for those men to do that. And lastly, his, his final point. And not only did they miss the Savior's presence, not only did they abuse the purpose of the old covenant and not see what it pointed to, but they also reject the new covenant's power because they're satisfied with themselves. Notice verse 39. And no one... By the way, he, he uses the same Greek word, eudasis. No one. He's using it because he's drawing them in. He's already said no one when it comes to the piece of cloth. And he says no one when it comes to the new wine and old wineskins. And here he turns it on him and says, and by the way, no one after drinking the old wine wishes for the new. Because he says, ah, the old is good enough. How in the, why in the world would you say the old is good enough? By the way, he's not talking here about aged wine in a sealed bottle where the freshness stays in and it becomes seasoned with its produced ingredients. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about stale, non-fresh. You know, people said, well, all this verse, it means you should want the old wine. No, 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 you shouldn't want the old wine. He's talking about stale, that which is past its usefulness. That's the point. He's talking about aged wine. Aged wine is sealed. It's still fresh. It's still accomplishing what it was designed to accomplish. And no air is getting in. Once you open it, it has to be consumed. Or it's not going to be anything but stale and not useful for its purpose. That's the point. So what is he saying to them? He's saying, look, the more you've participated in the old system, the more you've become intoxicated with it. And just like at a wedding, when people become consumed with the old, they don't even care that fresh stuff has come in the door. They don't even care. You become so full of your own righteousness with the old system that you are rejecting the new. And it's right here. That is the crux of the issue. I have arrived, you haven't looked carefully into my arrival. I have displayed power, you haven't looked carefully into the power and authority that is displayed in my, in my arrival and miracles. 
I have confounded you with transcendent wisdom. You haven't looked carefully at the wisdom that I'm giving. I've claimed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You haven't gone back and searched the Old Testament. You have preferred the old system. Why? It makes you feel better about yourself. Because if you come to the new system, you've got to get rid of all of you. You've got to reject all of you. Listen, that's what keeps people from the gospel right there. That's what kept Paul from the gospel until he was saved. That's what keeps people from the gospel. They are saying to Jesus, listen, I don't mind coming to you, Jesus, but if you're saying to me that I am to come with nothing of myself or my own goodness, I don't think that's fair or right that you get to overlook how I've lived. I am pretty decent. I've done some great stuff. I went to seminary. Or I give money to a lot of charities. I've been nice to people. I haven't committed the big issues. Never gone to jail. Not actually killed someone, though in my head and heart I've killed lots of people. But I haven't on the outside. That's got to mean something. Man, I've gone to foreign countries, worked with the Peace Corps, fed children. You're telling me that's nothing? Human righteousness is absolutely nothing? I don't think so. I don't mind Jesus taking a little bit of the the, the powerful guy you were. I I don't mind putting a little bit of your wisdom on my lips and helping other people. I, I don't mind reading this book that you say is divine. I don't even mind attaching myself to the church where I like all the music and everything I I really enjoy, but you're saying to me to trash all that? Because the new has come? I don't know. I mean, I grew up in this religious system. And you know, I spent a lot of years, worked worked really hard, got a lot of trophies. Burn them? What, so, so that I can admit to you that it's all filthy rags and nothing? So that I can say that you're, you alone are the only righteousness that I can have that would be satisfying to God? I don't know. The old is good enough. Well, beloved, it's not good enough. Not. Jesus says that that is unbelief. They accuse him of unrighteousness. And he turns right around and says, Oh, yeah? Well, if you don't recognize my presence then you don't understand what the Old Testament was pointing to. And now that I've arrived, you're trying to dabble a little bit of me in the old structure. It isn't going to work. You're going to ruin your understanding of both. And you know, that's typical, Jesus says, because you've sat around and fulfilled yourself and self-satisfied yourself with your own righteousness. So when the new is here and I say, look what you can have, you can have real freedom. You say, no, I'd rather have this little banquet over here, even though it's a grave. It's satisfying enough. So what does Paul say in Philippians 3? Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God through Christ on the basis of faith. I want to know the power of His resurrection. Everything else is death. How many people do you know who want to dabble in Jesus and they still want to hang on to their old uh, sense of themselves. Jesus says it ain't going to work. The old is not good enough. You must come like the disciples. Messiah came and he died. 
And then he was exalted and he sent his spirit. And so here we are 2,000 years later. We're still celebrating. Do we have burdens and cares and concerns? Yeah, but they're not of judgment. They're of the need to become conformed to Christ. I'm concerned about my sin. I have the power of the Spirit within to be conformed to Christ. That's what I'm concerned about. I've fasted at times. Why? Because what comes upon me in the person of Christ and in the work of His Spirit is a burden for somebody's souls or an issue in somebody's life. It's not a ritual. It doesn't make me feel more spiritual. And I'm certainly not more spiritual for doing it. You know what it is? It's a spontaneous concern for others. And when I've wept over my children, food is not an interest to me. My appetite is gone. But I don't go around telling people, hey, you know, I was praying for my kids and happened to go without food. Nobody cares whether I went without food. God doesn't even care whether I went without food. All He cares about is that I go to Him as His child and take my burdens to Him. I don't want to have any of the old garments, the old structures, the old sense of myself or my own righteousness. None of it. That, it, that plagues us. Even as believers, the tendency to go back and try to look spiritual, even coming to church. I'm not talking about what you wear. I'm talking about what you think about being here. What you think it makes of you. It makes nothing of us to be here. It is right to be here, but it makes nothing of us. If we're here and our heart is right, it honors and glorifies Him. It's just an act of love and gratitude. That's all. We're already forgiven, already covered. So don't dabble in Christ if you're here today and you don't know Him. Don't dabble in Christ and bring your old baggage. Just trash it all. Trash it all. Just give up everything you've ever brought. Family, heritage, education, money, whatever it might be. Just trash it. You must repent of that. And come to Christ by faith alone. If you're in Christ and you're here today, don't go back to it. Don't go back to whatever you thought of yourself before. Just come to the Word of God by faith. Ask God to change you. And know that you're nothing. And know that you're free in Him. Totally forgiven. And with freedom now, you can serve Him. Faithful. With His power. Lord, we thank You for this wonderful Word and these, these confrontations that we keep encountering in Your Gospels. Wow, your answers were profound. You were the fulfillment of all of it. For the religious and for those in Judaism of the past, the law of God was to point them to you. Lord, may we never miss in the reading of the Old Testament that it points to you. And everything in the Old Testament was to give us an appetite and a longing for you. And that's why we preach it today is not to yoke people under the law or condemnation, but for the believer to know what it pointed to and, and to love it and come under its moral strength by the power of your Spirit because we're free from its condemnation. And thank you that we are in the new covenant in Christ. How precious is the covenant you've purchased, Lord. How precious the freedom we have to come before the Father because we've thrown off the old garment in faith and we wear your righteous robes. A righteousness not of our own, but only of you. And thank you for the power of the Spirit to transform our actual character into your likeness. Not so that we'd be acceptable, but so that we would be 
glorifying to you and honoring to you. Thank you that we're already acceptable. May this lesson be driven home by our Lord in our hearts as he drove it home then. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.